Before we begin this episode on copula and existential clauses in biblical Hebrew, I wanted to say a few words about why we concluded this episode in our series on word order, particularly because we don't actually discuss word order all that much. So the main idea is that different kinds of clauses will affect word order. So when we come to something like an existential sentence or a sentence with a copula clause, those kinds of sentences may have a different word order than, say, a transitive sentence in Biblical Hebrew. So what we're trying to do is map out the kinds of existential sentences or the kinds of copula clauses that you might see in the Bible. So what we don't discuss is how this actually affects word order, right? But what's useful about this discussion is it gives you an idea of the complexity of even a subset of the kinds of sentences you see in Biblical Hebrew. And really, each of those subsets could potentially have a different word order, right? So we talk about, you know, for example, times when the copula copula appears and times when it doesn't appear. And that may affect the word order of the sentence. So these are the kinds of considerations we need to have in our mind when we're thinking about and evaluating claims about you know basic order and these kinds of things because whatever we consider to be basic has to make reference to a basic clause type right and so by looking at special clause types we can see here are the kinds of things that we need to be considering when looking at clauses in general in biblical hebrew and when looking at how we analyze word order in a particular sentence or in a particular discourse Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Daniel Wilson today about the semantics of to be in Biblical Hebrew. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks so much, Kevin. So just a little bit about Daniel. He is a research fellow in the Department of Hebrew at the University of the Free State in South Africa and works in cooperation with the Department of Caucasian Languages in the Institute of Linguistics at the Russian Academy of Sciences. He is the author of Syntactic and Semantic Variation in Copular Sentences, Insights from Classical Hebrew, which was published by John Benjamins in 2020, which was a reworking of his doctoral dissertation. His research includes the application of formal approaches to syntax and semantics to classical Hebrew. He's also actively engaged in fieldwork and documentation of endangered languages of the Caucasus, writing on interesting morphosyntactic phenomena as they relate to discussions in theoretical linguistics. Um, so it sounds like you have a lot of interests just with regard to language in general. Um, and I am personally excited that you are applying some of the more robust, you know, theoretical frameworks to classical Hebrew, which is what I also like to do. I, I, I said in the introduction um, that we'll be talking about the verb to be in biblical Hebrew because I didn't want to use any of the te- technical terminology that we will introduce. Um, but, you know, what that is normally called in linguistics is a copula. So can you just tell us what a copula is? Um, so we, you know, all know and we're all on the same page on on how we define this term. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for inviting me on. This is going to be fun. I love talking about this stuff. So, um 
Basically, in a traditional definition of a copula is, and um, there's a, a famous book called Copulas uh, in the Cambridge series, um, uh, and the definition put in there is, it's a linguistic element which co-occurs with certain lexemes in certain languages when they function as predicate nucleus. A copula does not add any semantic content to the predicate phrase it's contained in, and I know that's kind of crunchy. So basically a copula is typically the to be verb in a language and the traditional definition is it joins a subject to a nonverbal predicate um, with an item that traditionally says there is no semantic content at all um, uh, however um, you know as in uh, most topics of of linguistics especially when it comes to um, cat linguistic categories um, there there's constant evolution right we're constantly evolving as we get more data uh, from the, around the world and so I actually have an article coming out which offers a broader definition of of copulas uh, because throughout sort of the history of of research on copula constructions has been really heavily dependent on logic um, and so when you have these logical functions um, uh, there, there are even quotes uh, critiquing, you know, uh, studies of copulas because they don't, they're not accurate for the purposes of, of exact logic, right? We want to know this is this, um, and, you know, if uh, it, it, we need there to be no semantic content on that verb is, right, on that verb to be, um, in for the purposes of exact logic. But cross-linguistically and in the study of copulas, you know, around the world, uh, English is actually uh, somewhat unique in requiring a copula in um, every uh, sentence like this, right? Um, it's very rare that, that we get a, there are some dialects of English that don't require a copula, um, but, uh, but many languages um, have this, con this phenomena of a verbless clause. And so there's that juxtaposition of subject and predicate. Um, without any need of a copula, and Hebrew is is one of those. And so, um, essentially, when I talk about copulas or copula constructions, it's when you have this juxtaposition of subject and predicate, um, plus or minus a copula, right? Because uh, it's not required. These are these are types of sentences, um, and the copula plays a certain role uh, in those sentences. Yeah, that's helpful. So then, really, we should be thinking about. Um not just you know what what this verb is doing right but these kinds of sentences in which the verb may or may not occur um i mean i even think you know you mentioned english i even think about you know things that you can say in english without the copula right like you crazy um which it, which would be something that like we you know it wouldn't be like quote unquote proper english right um it's a dialect it's a dialect of english right but 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 it you you know no one would flinch at saying that um you know just on the street right right um right. but i'm i'm sure there are um well even like you know you hungry in a question mm -hmm. um there's all kinds of things that you you we, we say these things right but we don't really think about us saying them um but i'm sure there are other constructions um you know where where it would be not as good and and that's that's kind of the key right is parsing out when the copula is required and when it wouldn't be required so um, to totally mess mess with you, mess with your listeners, um, pay attention to how often you emit the copula when you're texting. 
Oh yeah, uh, texting. That, that's a, what it came to mind when I first said that. I was like, oh, yeah. I do that all the time. <laughs> all the time. All yeah. the time. Yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's great. So so okay, we we've we've mentioned um, you you've mentioned a couple of times this word predicate. So can you just give us a definition of predicate? Just you know, for people that because so we said there's a um you know, the copula is not the predicate. You said it's a, there's a nonverbal predicate that it's kind of connecting to. Um, so what, what, what is our definition of predicate that um, can cover these cases? And also, you know, the, the normal case where the verb is the predicate. Mm-hmm. Sure. So a predicate, and I mean, this is also debated. Almost everything that we talk about is going to be debated. Sure, of course. <laughs> um, but what a predicate is, is it's, um, I hope, I hope this isn't, um, too complex, but it's it's the unsaturated member of a proposition. Um, so if you think about um, uh, so a proposition is you know when you have um, an element like a subject and a verb or a subject verb object or something like that, right? And you can't just say walks slowly. You can't just say uh, hit the ball, right? These are these are unsaturated. These are not propositions. They don't have truth conditions. Right, um, but as soon as you add that subject, um, all of a sudden you have a fully formed proposition, which there, which has truth conditions, can be evaluated um, uh, based on whether it's true or false. Okay, so this is how predicates are typically talked about, and you can hear from some of the language that we use a lot of dependence on logic. Um, from that is, you know, once we once we have this unsaturated member that receives a subject, we have a proposition that is, has truth conditions. That's how predicate is typically used. So you have in a typical verbal clause, um, John walks, right? Um, the predicate is, is the verb, um, and then you have the subject. Um, whereas in copular sentences, uh, the predicate is just that, is that, that object, is that second nonverbal member um, that still can form a proposition when a subject is added. Yeah, so, so in that case then, um, you know, we'd say like John walks versus John is tired. Um, the the tired piece is the predicate, right? And and we can kind of see that, um, you know, to go back to the this language of being like unsaturated, um, you know, we the 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 term that I we've used on the podcast before actually is is the term argument, right? So mm-hmm. the verb walk will take an argument, right? And so before it takes that argument, it's unsaturated, right? It re- still requires something to complete the thought of that verb so something has to be walking so so when we um then add john right then we can see okay um this is you know saturated it's a it's a proposition it's something we can understand as a complete thought right and we can determine whether it's true or not um so then then when we come to something like tired right we also have the same sort of um it's the same it's the same as walk in the sense that something has to be tired right and so it requires something else um, to complete that thought, right? I think is the the main idea. So I mean, and we could get you know obviously much more complex into this with um, you know uh, yeah <laughs> D- different semantic theories. But 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 I think that's that's you know hopefully the um, our listeners can understand this that basically um, predicates will will require some sort of um, argument right yep um and that's that's their their main feature so 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 we've talked about predicate now in copula um you also work on existentials um and 
so this is something that you know people that are familiar with biblical Hebrew they might be familiar with this term, um, particularly you know in Yesh and Ain. Um, can you give us um, a definition of existentials and maybe talk about if they're in English and what they look like in English if they are? Yeah. So an existential is uh, a type of construction that shares many of the same morphosyntactic pieces as copular sentences, but they make fundamentally different assertion. And so an existential, if I were to take something like a book, uh, the book is on the bookshelf, um, uh, the existential corollary of that, you know, what's called a predicational sentence, right? Just like a copular sentence, like we just talked about. Um, would be there is a book on the bookshelf, right? It's the there is construction in English. Um, it, it contains a lot of the same pieces, but you have this required um, there is kind of uh, structure. Um, and those are a distinct, th those make fundamentally different assertions than copular constructions. Um, and so you have this um, existential versus predicational uh, sentence distinction. And uh, uh, Barbara Party actually came up with a really good illustration um, uh, uh, or a good analogy to illustrate the difference. So if we if we think about a video camera and we think about what the video camera is tracking, right? Um, we would say like the the book is on the bookshelf, like and now the book is on you know the the windowsill, and now you know it's 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 a camera. Um, and it keeps the camera fixed on the, the protagonist, right? It's the thing as the center of, of what we're interested in. Whereas an existential sentence is sort of analogous to like a security camera, which is fixed on a scene and whatever is in that location. So the location is the center, right? There is a book on the bookshelf. And so it is a, it's, it's describing a, a, a fixed scene and whatever's happening, you know, we would just say there is this happening there, there this is located there. So location as center versus thing as center. And that's how the two can be connected. Yeah. So that's really helpful. So then, then an existential sentence, then just the way we interpret this is, you know, we, we are, would you say it's, you're necessarily connecting it to a location then? Um, no, because you can say, um, there is hope, you know, or something like that. You know, it, it, it's not necessarily that way, but, and I, I don't know if you want to get into this as far as like in terms of what the the, the subject and the object of an existential is, because the anatomy of an existential um, and the fact that there are existential dis, uh, constructions that are distinct from copular constructions um, really messes with the data in terms of how we understand sentences in biblical Hebrew, um, because these sentences use the the copula haya just like um, copula constructions do um, but there's not a subject and object in the same way as you know like like he is a mighty warrior versus there was um, wheat in the field you don't have um, a prototypical subject and object and in fact uh, or uh, uh, yeah subject and object in the literature about existentials the anatomy of existentials consists of, of a pivot and a coda. That's the language that is used about existentials. The pivot is like book in the example of there is a there is a book on the table. And then uh, the coda is on the table, right? It's the prepositional phrase. Um, and then usually typically a particle or a verbal copula, okay? Um, in there, There's debate about this, but 
Um, I'm of the opinion, and I think a lot of, of folks who work on existentials think about the pivot of the existential as the object. If we want to say there's a subject and object in existentials, and the subject is actually the contextual domain, which is further specified by the coda. And so basically, if, if you think about it this way, like uh, in, in terms of subject and predicate, the predicate is, uh, you know, the subject is the thing that when added creates truth conditions. If I say there is a book on the table, um, the thing that creates the truth conditions is the contextual domain with which you can verify that that sentence is true or not, right? And so some people have talked about it. Okay, the object is the pivot and the subject is the contextual domain, and that's how we need to think about it. Um, and so anyway, it's it's not as clear, and it makes, I think, Hebrew students tr struggle with it because they'll encounter an existential without knowing about it. And they're like, okay, is this the subject or, or the object or whatever? And the confusion is 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 not your fault. It's because these are not prototypical subject, predicate, subject, verb object sentences well i think even just defining it as um an object right is probably uh pretty problematic right i mean just um i mean you people wouldn't normally say that i am not familiar with this this literature on, on existential so people wouldn't normally call the the pivot an object right or would they um those that are in doing research on existentials do they say they the do. object the object is the pivot okay interesting i mean in in modern Hebrew, you know, um, you you often do have the direct object marker on the pivot. Yeshli um, at Okay. Sefer. Okay. Um, so that's that's just an interesting. I mean, I, I think that's pretty common. Um, I think it's true in in uh, Aramaic as well uh, at some stages of Aramaic. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So um, we will not be focusing too much <laughs> too much on that stuff. But but it, I I think it's 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 really helpful to see. You know some of the uh, some of the issues that people are dealing with with these kinds of sentences, um, you know, and and it really is like, you know, much much more complex. And once you dig into the literature, you realize like, oh, okay, and the data, you know, um, you know, accounting for all the data is, is tough. So so um, okay, so so let's just let's just back up and so we we've talked about um, existential sentences and predicates. Um, and, and you mentioned you mentioned a cop the copula in biblical Hebrew can be used with either one, right? Is that did I hear that That's correctly? Right. So That's right. so can you explain can, or if you have an example from biblical Hebrew that would be helpful as well? Can you explain, um, you know, what's the difference between um, the copula used w as an existential sentence um, versus a, a you know predicational sentence, and how do you tell the difference between those two? Yeah, so. Um, most of the time, uh, yesh and ain, like you said, are typically regarded as like these existential particles that form existential sentences, and that's true. Um, but if you're dealing something with something, for instance, in in past tense, um, then you would have um, you have the copula functioning as an existential, or or in future as well. There will be, there won't, you know, there wasn't, um, and so. Let's see. Like, there's an example from Genesis 41:54. Um, there was a famine in all the land. Uh, there's a negative existential in Numbers 20. What, what, what is it? Vayiv ra'av ba'aretz? Ra'av b'chol ha'aretzot. Yeah. Okay. And so you have, you know, there, there was a famine in all the lands. It wouldn't make sense to say, 
uh, famine was in all the lands. Um, in, it, it's not in, assertionally that's not what's being done. It's not taking thing as center and saying famine. Now tell me about famine. Well, the mm-hmm. famine was in all the lands. No, it's it's asserting onto the context some situational uh, you know proposition. It's not it's not trying to do a typical predication where I have the thing, the the subject that I'm trying to predicate something of, right? As if you were concerned about famines at the moment. It, it no, it's describing the scenario, which is what existentials do. Um, so just just to hold on really quick. So so the form of the actual sentence though, right, would be the same in in those cases if we were talking about you know let's say uh different kinds of we were just talking about famines right and and you know the there was a famine in this other land and then we said you know there was also there was a famine in this land too right Mm -hmm. um then the form of that sentence would be the same as um you know there was a famine in the land right yes so so existentials and predicationals in biblical hebrew with hayah um, will often look identical. So, um, so you either way you would have, you know, vayira av baaretz or something like that. That's right. That's right. You, you, and and so um, that's what makes this confusing sometimes uh, for students. Is you know they they still translate it as there was a famine in in all the lands, but when they start getting into the analysis and they're like, what is the subject? What's what's the object? What's all this? And the the category of ex, an existential sentence has not been. Uh, has not is not in the grammars of biblical Hebrew, right? And so well, that's what I'm in, trying to do in the grammars outside of yesh and ain, right? Or that's I don't right. know. That's I, right. Yeah, it's not. And and so that was part of my part of my research. And and as I dug into these, I'm like, these are all existentials, and we've not been talking about this. And and it is a unique. It's a distinct type of 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 proposition, uh, with a whole linguistic you know literature devoted to it. Um, so. Yeah, that's great. So I, I cut you off, um, you know, talking about just that example. Um, so, so, um, did you have another example that you were going to share, or? Yeah. So the um, uh, numbers twenty verse two is a negative existential, and this is with lohaya, right? Velohaya maim laida, and so there was no water for the congregation, right? This is uh, this is how. So in the same way that you have ain. Um, for present tense, right? You have lohaya for for past, and so that's um, yeah. So haya is a is very very actively used to form existential sentences in in biblical Hebrew. So so then how how do we tell the difference? Obviously, um, you know we can't tell the difference just by looking at the sentence, right? What is it about the context? And I think you you alluded to this, um, but if you could just flesh out a little bit more. Um, what is it about the context that makes us interpret, you know, one sentence as a predicational um, sentence and another as an existential um, in biblical Hebrew? I mean, so it, to the biblical Hebrew speaker, presumably, right, they would have interpreted, they would have made this distinction, right? Um, and it just would have been context and they would have been fine with this sort of ambiguity. In English, um, we, we actually mark it, right? Um, I mean, in the past tense as well, right? So So we would say, you know, water was not in or for the congregation. Um, the congregation didn't have water or something like that, or there was no water. Exactly. So you had to make that switch, right? Because the, the, the issue actually comes, it's a, it's a semantics issue that comes down to 
um, there, there's different ways to describe this, but um, one way to describe it is at issue content or another is updating the common ground, right? And so what, uh, what sort of thing are we talking about here and what is the at issue content? And so if there's something already in the common ground, like as, as speakers or as readers, and, and we're trying to, you know, uh, predicate something upon that and we'll get into the different types of copular constructions. Um, this is that, you know, in, in a minute, but, um, it's, it's, almost always clear there are there are some ambiguous examples in fact i've pulled some of them out that are in my book um uh where it could go either way and th there's just nothing we can do with that there there are cases where there are ambiguous examples between a predicational versus existential sentence but most of the time it's very clear based on what the what the context is what the common ground is what the what what it is that we're talking about um and uh they're pretty easy to di disambiguate in most cases yeah yeah so um the common ground is another technical term right for people that aren't aware of it um that is basically what um i mean this gets very complex very quickly right um but but basically what two speakers would have in common about what is true and false, right? Um, what they would, um, yeah. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. That's that's and the, what's been stated before, right? Right. And so, you know, the the what whatever like in turn taking what kinds of things have been brought up before. Um, butterflies are pretty, right? I just said that, but there was no previous conver you know common ground where we were even discussing butterflies, right? So it, it we broke something there, right? Um, by inserting something that had no you know, in, in terms of turn taking. So we make these kinds of uh, compromises and, and we take these turns and we move and build on common ground and make updates to them as we have conversations with people and discuss issues, right? And and that's far more common than what I just did, which is totally just bring up something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Right, right. There, so there are those people at certain parties, though, that are really good at, <laughs> at disrupting the common ground. But Right, exactly. Um, so then, then an existential sentence then... Um, can you just explain, like, how does an existential sentence do something different to the common ground than a predicational sentence in that, in, you know, one of these examples? Uh, what, what an existential sentence does to the common ground, I actually have a whole, um, uh, article on this. Um, it's, it has to, there's a, a, a name, uh, called a thetic construction that is typically used, but essentially it's a common ground creator, right? And so it assumes, um, basically it assumes nothing and it creates the common ground there was no water for the congregation isn't building necessarily off of anything else that's gone before it um and so it's a common ground creator um that just asserts a proposition onto the common ground without necessarily building off of something previously said so you're saying that's an existential yeah right and so then a predicate would then be i take something an entity that we're talking about already or something that's known and then I say something about that thing. Is That's that right? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. So, so, so now we've talked a good bit about existential sentences. So let's kind of shift gears now to these predicational sentences. So, um, in predicational sentences, we're talking about you know again something in the context. Or, um, so what? There are though different kinds of predicational sentences, and this has been you know like well documented for quite some time in the literature. Yeah. Um, 
Can you just go through, um, you know, and there's different classifications. You can just go through your classifications um, sure. and your terms and, and tell us, you give us some English examples so we can wrap our heads around, mm-hmm. um, you know, these different kinds of sentences. Right. So there's a, there's a broad sort of like bifurcation between what's called um, ascriptive versus identificational um, or attributive versus identificational. And so um, identificational is basically when you have like an equal sign. Samuel Clemens is Mark Twain, right? Um, there, it's just a sort of a, this is this and the, what, what the sum total of what this is, is also what this is, right? And vice versa. The two um, subject and predicate can be um, inverted in a identificational sentence. Um, Mark Twain is Samuel Clements, right? Um, whereas ascriptive is when you're ascribing a property uh, or a name or something to an entity. Um, and so you have class membership, right? So class membership is like the noun, the subject is a member of a certain class. So he is, um, uh, he is an Irishman, right? Or he, he is a carpenter. He is, you know, whatever. Uh, you have property concept. Um, and these I've taken from Leon Stossen's huge work on intransitive predication, where he's just, um, he's taken like 490 languages around the world and tried to like consolidate what kinds of categories do we see and how can we distill them down? And this is what he did. So property concept is um, basically like attributive predication. So she is tall. She is pretty. He is um, mean, whatever. More uh, adjectives. Mm-hmm. In English. Yep. Uh, then you have um, identificational, right, which I've already covered. And then you have specif- uh, specificational sentences um, where uh, you have – it's essentially a naming mechanism. So you, you have like um, what the child likes is to play with toys is an identificational sentence or like the one that is in Hebrew is um, uh, the names of the people who uh, – who entered the ark, the names of the sons of Noah who entered the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Um, that's a specificational sentence. And so it's a, it's like a list, a listing function. And those are sort of distinct categories and they have various semantic uh, differences um, in uh, once you really dig into them. But Okay, so we have, um, I, I, let's just focus on the first three then and we'll, I'll go back and repeat them um, so identificational, right? Which is equal sign, and 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 I think one one thing I, I mentioned with the property concept sentence sentence is is it has an adjective, right? Normally as the predicate in English. Um, even in your examples, right? Identificational, you have a subject, um, you know, and then a predicate, and both you the example you used both were proper names, right? Um, okay, yeah. And, and and I think that's pretty typical where you have definite. Um, uh, subject and definite um, predicate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have um, class membership, right? And again, the examples um, were subject, um, definite, or pronoun, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, not not as important. But then the the class you you gave were were nouns, right? With an mm-hmm. uh, an definite. indefinite article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a carpenter, for example. Um, and then you had property concept, which were adjectives. Um, you know, he is mean. Um, and so 
the so these we could just focus on these three kinds of sentences um you know how how are they um expressed in biblical hebrew is there any variation you know between these three kinds of sentences in in what we see in biblical hebrew in terms of um you know word order or um in terms of the the pronoun the um you know additional um you know copula pronoun um, that we can talk about a little bit later um but yeah how, do, do you do you have any thoughts on on how these correlate with syntax or yeah so um this is like this is called like a taxonomy right these are this is a, a taxonomy of of constructions and so this would be like is um do does predicate type you know prefer any particular you know way of representing the construction right being a verbless clause um with haya or with the the pronominal element which which sometimes serves like a copula right um for biblical hebrew no for a lot of languages yes in fact there are some languages that are like for adjectives it uses this copula for nouns it uses this copula or whatever and it and it makes clean distinctions um, but for biblical hebrew we don't find that the one exception actually is in the one you didn't mention specificational what i found as i was looking through this uh, in my research was there are a lot of examples in biblical hebrew like that example i gave with the names of noah's sons that are specificational that have haya, um, and that's I think the majority of the case. Like there were several that I could not, several examples that I couldn't explain. My underlying most of my research was this question: Why use the copula if I can use a verbless clause? Um, what motivates the use? Because the verbless clause is by by far uh, the most productive way of doing copula constructions in biblical Hebrew. So if I can do it and I can do it in any tense, right? Past, present, future, I can do it like there, I can, you know, verbal clauses everywhere. Um, so if that's the case, why use Haya? Um, and I was able to answer that question for uh, most of the constructions because I looked at every example of Haya in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I was able to answer that question uh, in ways that we can discuss um, in a minute, but the, uh, there were a bunch, there was a handful of them I couldn't explain except that they were specificational sentences, and um, so that was interesting to me. But so, it's not so, a requirement. So specificational sentences used haya or or did not. Yes, order? they used okay. it. Okay. But it's not a requirement because I have examples of specificational sentences that use a verbless clause, and so it's not like this is a requirement. It's just that it was a pattern I noticed among a handful of examples that I couldn't explain any other way. That's right. what they had all had in common, right? So yeah, that's that's really interesting. So 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 we have then okay. So we talked about these three like um, really semantic definitions of um, you know uh, predicational sentences, right? Um, identificational class membership, um, well four, right? And then um, property concept and specificational, and then and then um, you know I just I just brought up basically the syntax in, in biblical Hebrew, right? We have different ways of expressing um, predicational sentences, right? We can do, like you said, the verbless clause, right? Where we have no haya, um, no other element. We just have, you know, um, a, a predicate and a subject um, or a subject and a predicate. And then, um, so that's, you know, we can call it like the 
null verb or however you want to um, call it, whether you think there's a verb there or not. Um, and then we have some sentences um, with a pronoun, um, you know, so I think the, uh, a famous one, you know, atahu Adonai, right? Yeah. Um, so you are, and then the who there, right, seems to be functioning as uh, is, right? That, yeah. That's how we would translate it in, in English. You are the Lord. Um, and then and then sentences with haya. Um, so so you, you, you'd mentioned, um, you know, uh, you, your, your main research was, why do you have haya? Right. So, so, so in these three constructions, I mean, what do you see as the patterns? Like, why would you use one? Um, why do you use the null? Why do you use the pronominal, um, you know, element, the atahu haya or adonai? I um, mean, why do you use haya? Sure. Okay. So this leads back to sort of the def, uh, why I thought that the copula needed a different definition. I'm going to go through a few examples of what haya is doing. And um, the copula can actually be classified as a type of auxiliary. So an auxiliary, like we have had three tornadoes in the last year or something, like have had, like these are auxiliaries, like they're, they're repurposed, you know, verbs used to um, host or pronounce certain features with respect to tensor aspect, right? This is how auxiliaries work. A copula is just that. It is an auxiliary whose purpose is to host or pronounce certain features. And some of these features um, aren't as simple as just tense and aspect um, variables, right? Uh, sense and aspect features. There are a few others. So this is what I found in the research. First of all, just take all the existentials, right? Existentials require haya if it's not yesh or ain, right? And so that's a bunch of the examples. That's why haya exists is to, to because uh, it's required for these existential sentences. Okay, so so just to point out, that's a, that's an important point, right? That we would never have an existential sentence with a verbless clause. Correct. Is it? Okay. Yes, so, um, with the exception of possessives. There are examples of possessives like low plus something right to him is whatever which is like a subtype of an existential in the literature but those are verbless all the time um but in terms of the kinds that we talked about just now um it's my it's my understanding that these require these require some form of uh, either okay so so then so then we're looking at sentences with right and we've said okay we have some that are predicational some that are existential um we're just going to block out those existential sentences for now right and then we're going to say why do you have these predicational sentences with haya and other similar predicational sentences without haya right that's that's the question that that's right so um one is aspect which i think I don't think it's controversial, imperfective or habitual aspect, right? So there's an example in Hebrews 9.15. In the evening, it would be over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until the morning, right? So this um, is, you said Hebrews 9.15, is that Exodus? Numbers. 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 numbers sorry. I, well, I said Hebrews. You said Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Numbers 9.15. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry. In the he- in the evening, it would be over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire in the morning. It would be over until the morning, right? There's right. this this idea. It, it uses yihye, uses the the uh, the yiktol form, right? And then you have like a past perfect uh, past perfect example, which perfect is you know a tense aspect sort of amalgam, right? But your servants have been men of livestock from our youth until now. Genesis 46:34. Um, so from our youth until now. 
that adverbial you know clues you that this is a this is a past perfective your servants have been men of livestock um, and it's actually my contention that Genesis 1 2 is past, past perfective um, and uh, this was the this was the example so the earth had been formless and void um, this was the example that got me started back in my master's program because I I had this question I was being introduced uh, to some of these ideas and I looked at this and I could not explain I couldn't because in the very next verse, the spirit was hovering over the, the waters, right, is verbless. And I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't because like we need to know what the tense is. It's clear like that we we're reporting in, in past time, right? What, like what, why is Hayata there? Why is, why is this verb there? Um, and that started the entire journey for me was this example. This is the way I'd explain it, right? In the beginning, God, you know, Genesis 1-1, it's clear that we're talking about something past referring. So why in Genesis 1-2 is Hayah there? Like, is it, it's not required. This perfective form of Hayah is not required in order to disambiguate the tense, which is uh, uh, commonly what it does. So I'm like, what what is it doing there? Why is it there? And then you have this subsequent verse three where it's it's clear and it just continues on and so as i i finally got around to answering this question after i had looked at every example of hayah in the hebrew bible and categorized the use of every single one um this one it is i'm absolutely convinced is past perfective now okay okay so, had, so, so 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 what would your translation be then the earth had been formless so past void. perfect yes past perfect sorry i said perfective past perfect no Okay. Okay. So, so then, then the 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 point here then is that it, it it's not that it's not that haya is needed um, for a certain kind of tensor aspect, right? But it's that haya is needed for a new tensor aspect. Is would would be my interpretation of what you're saying. So, so you have because you have a a certain topic time that was established, right, or reference time. In mm -hmm. the first verse, right? Mm -hmm. So you have like um, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, and so that's past past tense, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you have the next clause, what you're saying is that w what the Hayah is doing is introducing a different time, right? So had been, right? Um, would be before or, well, it would be... Um, I, I see it as parenthetical. It's a parenthetical sort of. Now, let me explain. The earth had been formless in the void, and the spirit of God had been hovering over the face. So that verbless clause, what verbless clauses do is they continue the time that's established based on, you know, uh, it, you know the, the verb that proceeds, right? So now the, the spirit had been hovering over the face of the deep, and, you know, this had been this and this and this, and then God said, let there be light. But right? that's but, how but you I have to hi ya there because it's establishing a different one than the previous yes. clause. Yes. Right. Okay. So so that's why you have to say had been and not just was. That's right. Because if, if it had just been the earth was formless and void, it would have been verbless, hands down. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I uh, I'll have to reread um that passage again and think about it a little bit more okay so 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 then so then we have a high being used then you have you brought up examples for for um, aspect aspect 
tense aspect stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then you have mood, which is obviously, I mean, it's obvious because there's imperative morphology for Hayah, right? Um, so that, that, that's pretty clear. Uh, but then you have what's called inchoative, right? And an inchoative is, um, it has the idea of become, right? Uh, uh, um, becoming, um, acquiring a state, right? Um, and so this is the famous Hayah plus Lamed examples, right? Where yeah. you have uh, in Second Samuel five two, uh, you will become leader over Israel, right? You have va'ata tehyeh lenagad, right? And so you have this um, Hayah plus Lamed, but you don't need the Lamed uh, for there to be this becoming, this acquiring the state idea. Um, so that's one example where um, Hayah is required. Um, then you have these interesting, what, what I called directional um, examples. Uh, and this, I mean, they're everywhere. This is the word of the Lord came to Samuel, came to Elijah, came to whatever. First Samuel 15, 10, right? Right, he divided El Shmuel. Exactly. It's yeah. everywhere. What's crazy about this is it's everywhere. But if you think about the semantics of it, what are the semantics of it? It's telic, right? And it has a um experience or subject which is not typical for copular sentences at all they're not events they're not achievements right if you think about the different like semantic categories of sentences you have states you have achievements you have um um accomplishments accomplishments activities. and activities yeah so you don't copulas aren't supposed to be involved in those other three right, right. they're supposed copulas to just supposed be, be states. states right exactly and so this is really what what like got me started on the road that I'm on to saying this is everywhere. I'm working in languages now, multiple languages. I have an article coming out demonstrating just amazing things that copulas are doing that are filled with semantics beyond just what have been traditionally defined. Right. And this is this was these were the examples that really clued me in when I started to think about the semantics of the word of the Lord came to so and so was this is, you know, this is functioning in in a way that copulas traditionally defined is, is not supposed to function right right so so then the the, the question then right um is you know okay you can't say that in english right um in the in, you can't say um it, it was you know, to, the, to somebody right right the, the the word of the lord was to me meaning the word of the lord came to me right and that's how it's translated in english right it, you have to use come um so so the question is um are are we dealing with just a lexical difference between haya and is in English? Is that is that and, and you know this has been noted, right? Um, okay, haya means to be, but it also means like happen, right, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and so this is this is where you get down to like for instance the question that you're asking. It's a good question. Is maybe haya is being repurposed, and there's a second verb that is filled with all sorts of like event semantics. Um, or, or achievement semantics, right? Um, uh, but what's crazy is when you start looking at copular constructions, like how these things are used around the world, you realize that all I've done there is I've introduced features. I have not introduced anything else except for um, um, uh, what are called um, a, uh, an end boundary, right? a boundary happening, right? Yeah. So it's, it's boundary happenings are, con are concerned with points, Normal events are concerned with intervals. All I've done is describe. I didn't. I'm not describing the process. It didn't fly to me. It didn't, you know, boil up to me. It didn't, you know. I'm. I'm just describing a telic achievement that still has 
um, this sort of copula idea. Um, and so, it, so it, it's yeah, just a feature. Right, right. And, and I think that the important thing when we talk about like features is, is it's, it's a it's a logical feature. It's not a yeah. it's not it's not a lexical feature in the sense that no. like you don't really have a different um, meaning in this kind of construction. What you have is, well, I mean, what you're saying is when when you say, you know, the word of the Lord was to someone, right? Um, and what you're saying, right, is is it's it's an achievement. It's telic, right? It's a boundary happening, right? So it's all basically saying um, the the end point of um, you know this event of um, you know the the word of the Lord um, moving in the direction to someone, right, has occurred, right? That endpoint has been reached, That's right? right? That's right. Um, it is now in Samuel's possession, right? That's right. And so, so the point in that is that is that you don't have, um, it would actually be different. Um, the idea would be that if you had used the word um, bo, right, come in, mm-hmm. in biblical Hebrew, you would have a different meaning, right? I mean, it would be very similar. Completely. Yep. Um, but it would be a bow would contribute something that's different um, than just Hayah, which is basically. And so what's crazy is I think there's a what my article is about, basically about is there's a finite inventory of these certain types of features um, that copulas as auxiliaries can host and can license. Right. And we see them in the cross linguistic research I'm doing, like one language I'm working with right now uses copulas um, with a, an evidential right and that basically means was this witnessed or was it unwitnessed right and so um you would have like um like uh the the english one that i that i love to use because it really throws people off is like uh looks right um or tastes right that tastes good Mm -hmm. all that is is a copula plus evidential that is that is good and i have direct evidence um, right or she looks pretty she is pretty and I have direct evidence what these other languages use is copula the evidential version versus copula the non-evidential version right so there's another feature right that can control these things but we would never think looks or tastes as copulas but in some sense they are um, they just we we are as the exponent right as the 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 verb that we're using to represent that, right? We're we're repurposing, um, you know, this sort of experiencer verb. Um, yeah. So well, maybe an accurate, a better way to talk about it would be they have like copular like uses, you know, in these kinds of. Because I can think of, you know, I, I think I don't know. I, I this this gets into tricky business, but but which we can set aside. I I, I yeah, I'm, we're a little I'm, distracted, I'm hes- but yeah, I'm hesitant to call taste and look a like a, a copular verb. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, we'll, 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 we can talk same about Same with, that. same with remains, same with all of that, right? Seems. Yeah, yeah. He seems nice, right? So all those are, are this relationship between subject and complement is also what it's called, subject and predicate, subject and object, um, with a, uh, with some features that can be hosted by, um, by a copula. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. Okay. So. So. This is. This has been really. Really helpful. So. So. Let's. Let's get back to these okay, other, other kinds examples. of sentences. Yeah. So. So. One so more. We have haya, right. Haya functioning for tense aspect for the encodative for directional. Then you have what's called the complement. What I call the complementless version, um, which is like Isaiah sixty six two. All these things my hand has made, and all these things came to be, declares the Lord. 
Um, so it's just vayehi kol ele, right? All these these things came to be, right? There is no complement; they're complementless. Like they don't have an object um, or or and a predicate, right? That could obviously fit in um, pretty well to the encoded idea as well, uh, depending on how you define sure. it. Sure. Beginning of someone's existence versus or something's well, what, existence. What's interestingly, what's interesting is it's it's. Um, I also think of it as an achievement, and because it has this achievement semantics, um, there are there's an example. There are limited number of nifal haya, right? So so that's the only in terms of binyan, like the the binyanim haya only outside of the cal is just nifal. And almost every one of the examples of the nifal of haya are these complementless, right? So once it moves into the category of something like an achievement, some sort of event, right? Well, then we can start to play with the binyanim, um, and and have you know you can and you can feel how we would get like someone would want to use the nifal for for something like a complementless, like all these things came to be or something. So it's it was it was really interesting to discover that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, and and I actually have a lot of interest in the binyanim, so I I will look at that <laughs> uh, yeah. more closely. So, um, okay, so 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 then we have haya. Then so let why then we have these other kinds of clauses, right? Where I had mentioned atahu adonai. Um, yes. Why are those used? So the the predominal. Um, so I've actually gone back and forth and changed my opinion on what this is doing. I mean, there's been a lot written about it. It's been called the tripartite nominal clause. It's been called, you know, is it a is it a, a is it a resumptive pronoun that has been reanalyzed as a copula, or is it, you know, what what is this thing and what is it doing? Well, can, can you explain really quickly uh, what what a resumptive pronoun would be, just yeah, in English? So, yeah. So like in an example, for instance, like now Kevin, he's a linguist, right? Um, so, like, it, once I do that thing that I did with Kevin, right? Um, the resumptive pronoun, like, I use it whenever I do something like I did with with Kevin, right? So now Kevin, he's a linguist. I've got this left dislocation situation. The resumptive pronoun resumes the subject that I just referred to in order to form my my predicate. So, so the resumptive pronoun there is he, and the reason why people in biblical Hebrew have um, had this analysis, I think, just at a very basic level, is um, in English, that's the only option, right? Um, because because you would never use um, you would never use the cop the pronoun, sorry, as um, a sort of copular like verb, right? Um, and so so the issue is that that you would you would only have um, you know if if you said you. Um, you know, he is, I don't know, right? <laughs> like, like that, that, that would be, I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be very good English either. Um, but, but, um, the, the issue is, right, that it, when you want to stick to one gloss with, um, you know, this pronominal element, who, right? Um, it doesn't work, <laughs> right? Um, in, 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 uh, in English, right? So, so I think that's part of the, this whole, discussion right it's just how english is affecting our our categories here so so let's just um say that's you know that that's another option right this, this is what people have said right so they have they've said um that this who is actually functioning as as a copula right or something like a copula um and then they've said it's this resumptive pronoun in english right and so you'll you were explaining 
what difference is that in... it was reanalyzed, right? So at, right. in an older stage of Hebrew, perhaps you had a left dislocation construction that then it just became now Kevin is a linguist, um, and then that who just became like our is, right? Right. Um, and so the, the the there are very limited unambiguous examples of this there there's a small minority of unambiguous because sometimes it is ambiguous as to whether or not in hebrew this who is functioning as a resumptive pronoun actually in a left dislocation construction um, but there are some unambiguous like the one you mentioned ata who adonai right um, and so in those unambiguous uh examples they're limited to one clause type right um, they're, they're, they belong specifically to like this um, uh, identity sort of construction. You are the Lord, right? Always with a pronoun, always with a definite noun, right? Um, or, a, or a proper name or something like that, right? And so um, you have a very, very limited clause type um, semantically. And so I've like, I've analyzed this as... Um, Basically, it, the the really long, crunchy form, and you can get into this, and and even you know, uh, you know, another time disagree or whatever. But it's, I think it's the exponent. I think it, it carries the, the agreement features on T in the context of a certain functional head, blah blah blah. And like we use this um, this post syntactic process called impoverishment um, in in um, distributed morphology that I work in and you work in. Um, where this basically deleted the person feature and defaulted to the otherwise form, which is the third person, right? And so, you know, you, you have, and that's why you can, it, I don't need to go fully into that, but there's a syntactic explanation for why it, why we're using this particular pronoun. We still always carry the number and gender features, but we don't, we don't carry the person feature. So uh, anyway, it's, it's an interesting discussion for another time. Well, no, not necessarily, right? Because you do have um, – there's one that's like, you are my god or something like that, right? Yes, this is actually one yeah, that yeah, I was yeah. going uh, to bring up. That's right. That's so right. I think um, you bring up in your dissertation – so this is back in 2018, so you know you, you could have changed your mind since then. Um, Jeremiah 31, 18 um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. versus Isaiah 37, 16. And – and um, I, I, let me pull them up. But I did, I did, I did look into that because you wrote me about that, and I did in the published uh, book. I did change my view on this. Um, I changed my view that they're not necessarily, not necessarily identificational constructions, though I think that they still are individual level predicates, which we haven't talked about before. We there's stage level and individual level. Okay. Okay, so 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 this is interesting. So so um, okay, so so in Jer Jeremiah thirty one eighteen, you know, um, Ata Adonai Elohai, right? Um, and so Adonai here is is you know God's name, it's a proper name, um, but but it's also a n one of you know potentially many proper names that could go there for different kinds of gods. Um, yeah. And so here we have um, a verbless clause, right? Um, Ata Adonai, and then it says, so so you are. Adonai, Elohai, my God, right? Um, so then we compare that to Isaiah thirty-seven, sixteen. Uh, Atahu ha, ha Elohim levatcha, right? So Atahu 
Hu Ha Elohim. So this, this is talking about God, and it's talking about um, you know who He is. So you know you're saying in this context, right? Um, you alone are God, right? Um, so in one case you have um, this Hu um, that's functioning as this pronominal copular like thing, um, and in one case you don't. So 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 you what what you just said was. Um, you've changed your position on this, and I and I agree with your vice position. Um, I I think that the pronoun um, or this copular, um, I don't know, I can't remember what you call it, because um, you, you don't pro- call it a copula. So, but, no, but yeah, but this, it's, yeah. Go ahead. Just I called it prawn, inconsistent with the other letter li- literature, but right, right. So so this prawn element, right? So it 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 functions like a copula. Like that's how you would translate into English. Um, in the sense that it's connecting two things, right? Um, and the idea is that what 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 you're saying now is that it actually has a specific semantics to it. Yes, right. It it, it is it is it shows up in certain environments um, to host certain features, like a copular element does. But it's those those are very reduced context, contexts. Um, okay. And 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 so. So yeah, no, I did. I modif- I I revised my position on it, um, and uh, reflected that in the published version of my dissertation, which um, I think like put me at odds with with some folks because they liked my initial position. But anyway. <laughs> well, I, I like your new position. So so tell us tell us what um, an individual level predicate is, um, and um, and yeah, what that's doing and, and how that relates to these examples. I I hope that your listeners are still like staying with us and stuff. Cause I mean, there you can some, see some have dropped ab- off by at this point, but it's okay. <laughs> an abundance of categories in something that should be extremely simple. Right. But yeah. Um, so uh, like it, I could use, for instance, this, the sentence he is, um, he is uh, the city is cold. Right. And I could just, I could mean the city is cold right now. Um or I can mean the city is cold in general, right? It is a it's a generally a very cold city. Um, well, if I if I say the city is cold in general, um, that's individual level predicate. If I say the city is cold right now, it's a stage level predicate. Um, and so it's a yeah, different so, type type of yeah. Right. So the this idea goes back to Carlson's dissertation in 1977. Basically, the idea is that you can predicate something of an individual right where it's it's consistent across time yes um so the city is cold in general like you've said right or at a particular stage of an individual right stage level predicate so it's at this current state right stage in this entity's existence it's cold right um so you know minneapolis is cold right um and it's just like that's just how it is right (laughs) um um you know, Atlanta can be cold, um, but it doesn't happen very often, right? Um, and so, so there's lots of things that go into why we would interpret, you know, something as a stage level versus an individual level. But what you're saying is that in biblical Hebrew, um, this prawn um, thing, whenever you see it, it's signaling to the reader, interpret me as an individual level predicate. It's showing up in the context in which the, the relationship between subject and complement is an individual level predicate relationship. Right, right. Which I, I think is like, you know, super interesting because you don't have that in English, right? We would use is across the board. Um, and so you're seeing a distinction then in biblical Hebrew um, that you are you don't find in 
in English. Um, that's syntactically encoded, right? Um, okay, so so yeah, I, like you pointed out, I mean, I think there, I'm sure there have been some people that have that have dropped out off at this point, <laughs> but maybe we can talk <laughs> about a couple other things um, before we just wrap up. So so we've talked about a lot of different kinds of sentences, um, and um, you know, different semantics of those sentences. Can you talk a little bit about um, word order? So, so uh, you know, th- we're doing this series on word order, right? Um, and I think one of the one of the issues in the whole discussion on word order um, within biblical studies, both Greek and Hebrew, honestly, um, has been not close enough attention has, um, to um, things other than just like the order of subject and verb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and the issue is that that these things are very, very complex, right? Um, and there's all kinds of things that can affect word order. So um, what kinds of factors in, you know, in your research um, do affect the word order in predicational sentences? As an example, um, you know, you say that um, predicate subject is typical after low, Um and you said that on page sixty-three of one of your works that I was <laughs> reading at the time. Um, so, so do you know, you know, why this or any other factors affects the word order, and and what kinds of things should you be looking for when you're when you're trying to see what's marked? Um, the issue with this, right, is um, really determining what what's like quote unquote basic or what's like unmarked from yeah, a yeah. pragmatic standpoint, right? Because if you assume that um, you know, subject predicate is going to be consistent across the board, and that's always what we'll we should see, right? Then every time you see predicate subject, um, then you're going to say, "Oh, okay, this is marked for pragmatics," and this is what people normally do, right? Right. Um, yeah, I yes, like you, I think it's it's far less nuanced than it needs to be in in typical conversation, right? Um, and so, like, and I I think there's a general consensus. Um, even with people that I would disagree with on sort of the macro issue, I think there's consensus among people with verbless clauses. The, the default order is subject predicate, right? And I think there's there's pretty decent consensus about that. Um, when you start throwing hayat in there, um, it it gets more complex because in existentials, for instance, um, it's typically verb first, right? Um, but what's a subject? So then we're back to that conversation in an existential. Yeah, you can yeah. see why so much nuance is necessary, right? Um, also, you know, the conjugation it, it means everything, right? So it's if it's a y a vicetol, then of course it's not going to be SVO, right? right. Um, if you have a negative element, um, you know, like lo haya, you'll never get the subject in between lo and and haya, right? Rarely you get it before, right? So um, especially in, not in an existential. Um, and so it just it requires so much nuance, and it's not it's not as easy as just saying you know what is what is the basic word order. And it, it um, there, there are examples though, clear examples of of pragmatics in verbless clauses, for instance. Like one is Second Samuel twenty one two, right? Now the Gibeonites um, uh, were not from among the sons of Israel, right? And so it's like the the Gibeonites not. Right, not from the sons of Israel were they, right? So you have you have these kinds of of, of examples that that come up, um, and uh, you have an encoding with focus in Jeremiah uh, seven thirty four. Right, this is really interesting. Um, 
because it's like a waste the land will become, right? Uh um aretz, right? Um that's that's really rare for um an encodive uh example, right? The Hayaplas Lama to have the Lama like with um the the object or the, the predicate come up, right? And then have right so you do you do have examples of pragmatics but it's you know what's what's weird for this type of sentence or this type of construction not like is this weird for all of biblical hebrew constructions right it's just it requires a lot more nuance when when discussing word order yeah yeah that's interesting How, have you seen i i have always felt like um and i i can't remember if um Nowadays, and, and Vander Merwe have said this or not in their their reference grammar. I I I feel like the typical order for predicate or for for um like property concept sentences is is typically predicate subject, right? And I think Anderson has data on this that. Oh yeah yeah yeah, I remember you that. You have you have a, a lot that. more examples. So when you have when you have a definite predicate, it's almost always going to be subject predicate, right? But when you have an indefinite um, either a class uh, membership or property concept, you often have, at least way, way more often, you will have predicate subject. Um, and I think that's something that like, you know, even in this whole discussion, right? I mean, what, what you have to do, right, is you have to go through all the examples and you have to see, okay, like, are there any um, other reasons why you have movement here, right? Or is this actually not movement, right? Is this right. Is, is this signaling to you that, okay, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think another reason that it could this could be the case right it's because you actually do have a type difference again this is like pretty theoretical but a type difference between you know the predicate as an individual right and identification sentences versus um you know an adjective or an indefinite right um or an, an arthros really um you have um that's a true predicate right um and so f- semantically it's going to be different right than um, identification of sentences when you have, you know, these two things are just yeah, individuals that are equal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, do you have anything else to add before we sign off? I'm sure if anyone is still um, <laughs> listening, then then they are, uh, their head's full of, of knowledge about the verbless, verbless call at, the, at this point, but. Um, no, I I don't think so. I'm just thrilled that someone's interested in hearing about the the research. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of years on it, and so it's fun to be able to uh, fun to be able to talk about it and get it out there and know people are interacting with it. So yeah, well, it's been it's been great to have you on. Um, and maybe we'll we'll do it again sometime when you have other work come out. Um, so thank you, Daniel, for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Okay.